okay. Hi, this is Michael Waits. So much better, by the way. And welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. We have Rishab Singhi with us today, the founder and CEO of DishServe. And I'm going to say this. I like the way, unless I've got this wrong, DishServe, one word, but capitalizing the second word. Do I have that right? Yes. I love right. this. I do this all the time, and people make fun of me for it so much. There's something about like the way my eyes look at words, even if it's a combination of two things. I love the way you've written this. Rich, anyway, thank you very much for coming on the show. How are you today? Thank you so much, Michael, for inviting me. I'm doing very well, and thank you for all the praises on the word. <laughs> Funny story about behind, I don't know if you, if you would like to hear this, Go. but uh, so we were thinking about, hey, you know, what should we call this? And uh, we had like, we, we shortlisted a few words. We are four co-founders together. So we okay. had like four people thinking about brainstorming the word and stuff like that. And uh, one of my co-founders, she's like, hey, you know, you guys are taking too long. I'm just going to start selling. So are the first products that DishServe sold as a company were puddings that she made at her own house. I love it. Just to see if, you know, things could be sold. Right. Um, and she's like, hey, you know what? This takes too long. I'm just kind of, you know, go about it. And uh, she kept the name DishServe. And we all keep kept thinking, blah, blah, blah. We had the sale. And then like other people came along, hey, yeah, we should call this, we should call us. And like, we've already made a sale with this brand name. It is good omen, let's just stick with it. And like, people were like, hey, Dish Serve, it, it's it's complicated to say, it's a tongue twister and like, it's even better. So it would stand out one day. And that's how we started. I love these stories, right? Because people will look at the name in 25 years and 30 years and they'll think that there was this massive like PR and, you know, company that was hired to figure out what it was and how it should be spelled and stuff like that. And it's really just somebody going, I don't care what you guys are doing. I'm selling pudding. You guys can, I'll catch up with you guys later. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. And the domain name was available. So it's like, okay, perfect. We found something that sells and has an available domain name. Works. Done. <laughs> can I get a little bit of your background for some context? I don't really know that much about you yet. Sure. My name is Rishab. People call me Rish. Prior to DishServe, I was also in the founding team of uh, Red Doors, and I was the chief operating officer. Red Doors is uh, the largest hotel company in Southeast Asia. Now, we started out with standardizing uh, budget accommodations. So we started out with two-star hotels, and now we have we do all kinds of accommodation solutions, right? From two-star yeah. hotels to three-star hotels, four-star hotels, villas, co-living, we started out the company in summer of 2015, and we, we were in Indonesia until 2016. Okay. And post that, we started to expand outside of Indonesia. So we expanded out to Singapore, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand. As as a chief operating officer, I was responsible for taking care of PNL growth, expansion. The country heads used to report to me, and so on and so forth. The fun fact about my my job at Red Doors was I've been to a hundred Southeast Asian cities during my time at Red Doors in four years. And I was extensively traveling, but that kind of gave me exposure to Southeast Asia. Before Red Doors, I used to take, uh, take care of international business and M&A at a company called careerbuilder.com. Okay. Careerbuilder.com was a leading job board and HR tech company based out of the US. It was an old company. That means it was started out in 1990s. Oh, wow. And they used to do all of these Super Bowl ads, and it was owned by 
the leading newspapers like USA Today, Gannett, etc. in the US. So it was like a classifieds company that was yeah. It was trying to transform itself into a tech company. When I joined, they wanted to kind of go from being a jobs website to becoming a SaaS company. And at the extent, uh, I joined them in 2011. So after the financial crisis, Kareemda was sitting on pile of cash. So they wanted to kind of you know go out there, expand, do whatever it takes to be a SaaS company. So my part of my role was to kind of acquire companies. We did about 16 acquisitions in Europe in about two years, and about six acquisitions in Southeast in in Asia. So we started out with Singapore as a first acquisition, uh, and then did an acquisition in Indonesia, Vietnam, did a JV in Malaysia, China. Started the business organically in India. Kareemda was later sold to Apollo for two point five, two point two billion dollars. Good stuff. I, I want to ask you this: A lot of companies that get started get started to solve like a personal problem. I can understand the red doors thing, right? And I'm not projecting this, but my guess is at some level, people were traveling around just going, "There's no place for us to stay. There's not even a clean place for us to stay. There are plenty of cheap places, but none of them are good. And booking them is hard. And finding one in the next city, if we're going to travel around, is even harder. Where are we? How do? How can we organize this? How can we take something that's fragmented? Put it on a platform and make it just so much easier. How do we brand this level of a place to stay? That I can at least understand. What's the problem you were trying to start with? Dish serve. Yeah, so we started Dish Serve in December 2020. It was in the middle of pandemic, right? And when we started out, we started out with solving the problem where we felt that a lot of the places, small places, where there was like good food. Uh, some of my favorite places were shutting down. Yeah. Uh, so the small brands were shutting down. The bigger brands were thriving. And the idea that I that we started out with was that hey, how could we help these small brands to expand by making it extremely easy for them to just plug into a platform, cook some extra food, and be able to expand without without having to think about renting a hundred places and then hiring staff at those hundred places and training those staff and then finding equipment for those places and then spending on marketing to make all of these places work for them and so on and so forth so the idea was how can it be extremely easy for a brand to expand okay so we used to help when we started out in 2020 december we we started out with the idea of helping small fnb brands to expand with a network of cloud kitchens which is delivery only kitchens so what we were doing is essentially go to a brand and say hey you know just just log on to our platform register with us and you tell us how many outlets you want we'll go and get those outlets for you you don't need to hire staff you don't need to find the real estate we just get the outlets and you just need to cook some additional food in your central kitchens or your wherever you kind of mass manufacture your food and we'll help you to distribute your food through all of these micro outlets where essentially the food would be just reheated and sold right and then on the other side we would go to these underutilized kitchens underutilized kitchens as in we, that's what we wanted to find like what's the most underutilized asset because we wanted to kind of go and find the cheapest possible real estate asset who we could optimize and give more value to by providing access to these brands which were actually good we figured out that the most underutilized asset is actually a home kitchen a kitchen inside a house and the most underutilized human resource not not really under at that point of time yes we thought it's underutilized but the most undervalued probably human resource in other people's perspective was a housewife because you know we felt that a home kitchen a kitchen inside a house could actually be converted into a, a kitchen where food could be sold and the housewife could operate it and these small brands could get hundreds of these spots where they could 
uh, supply food neighborhood to neighborhood. And we got these, we got to these housewives said, hey, do you want to earn some extra cash? Housewives had their own problem. Like they were not able to go out and earn money. Number one, it was a pandemic. There were already less jobs, fewer jobs. But the part of the bigger problem was that these housewives were often not able to find work, less education, young children, society pressure. Fair enough. And so on and so forth. So by by turning their kitchens into a commercial kitchen and by training them and you know giving them equipment and SOP and stuff like that, these were born chefs. They had all the skills needed to be a chef, just that they were so busy in providing for their families that yep. they just never got to fulfill their dreams. So we brought the restaurant right into, into their house. This was like an Airbnb for us where we figured out, oh, you know, just like the Airbnb guys figured out, oh, there's an extra bedroom or there's right. an extra bed. Why can't we make it commercial? And there was this kitchen sitting right next, right inside our houses. Why can't we make it commercial? Yeah. So we started to kind of go to these kitchens, standardizing them in terms of equipment, SOP, audits, hygiene, all of that stuff. Was that expensive to do? So it wasn't. So all they needed was a couple of freezers, few microwaves and the kitchen already has all the equipment it has a gas stove it has it has all the utensils etc so all okay. all we needed was a very minor and plus the major cost is when you kind of start a restaurant the major cost of the kitchen level is to provide for let's say the furnishings like you know exhaust fans yeah. or the cooking equipment uh, like a gas stove and so on and so forth if if you're Scaling it down to a bit where you prepare a kitchen only to process about 10 to 20 orders per day, because these were small brands, they would not generate 500 orders per outlet. They would only generate 20 outlets, uh, 20 orders per outlet, which was fine. And our idea was that, hey, let's create, let's distribute this demand instead of 500 orders per outlet. If I have 20 outlets in the same area, the load on each outlet would be very less. And these 20 outlets can happen because there are unlimited number of houses. So we don't need to kind of, you know, like aggregate demand on an outlet level. So we went to them and we kind of started do this and this model kind of worked. So brands were very happy working with us because now when they worked with us, they, the small outlet in South Jakarta, FNB brand in South Jakarta would, was also able to have an outlet in North Jakarta or had multiple outlets in North Jakarta and so on and so forth without spending a penny on CapEx. Did it change their margins? Do you know what I mean? Yes, this brings us, this brings me to the next uh, next point. So we ran this model for about a year and a half. Uh, okay. Though this idea was extremely revolutionary, the margins were extremely thin for everybody in the value system because there was this FNB brand, then there was this dish serve, there was the kitchen partner. The and logistics and all this stuff, yeah. Yeah, so for the food brand itself, the margins were actually very good because they did not have to spend for the capex so let's right. say if i were to start a new uh but the problem was that in 2020 the capital was very cheap and let's say if i, I want to run a restaurant today and i would want to take a bank loan take out a bank loan today it's more expensive than it was in uh, 2020. yeah so now this model would even make more sense but at that point of time capital was cheap which means it it was very easy for fnb brand to take out a loan for, for so from that standpoint yes there were four people in the chain food delivery app was the biggest margin eater out of the four. Uh, then there was the kitchen partner who had to be compensated well to kind of keep them excited and uh, you know ready for the job. Um, and then Dissa was doing all of this heavy lifting and a lot of a lot of this heavy lifting right from, hey, what menus do you want to sell to how does the food come from the brand partner to Dissa Central Cold Warehouse and then from Dissa Cold Warehouse to the kitchen, all in cold chain, etc. They did a lot of tech, but it also was very operationally heavy. 
Yeah, sounds like it. So the thin margins, operationally heavy. Third point was the small brands that we worked with. We realized that, that if the demand was high, they were not able to scale. And the reason, primary reason was that they had very small facilities. They were built for smaller things. Uh, and for them to kind of go into a mass manufacturing kind of stuff would need a lot of capex and they were just not ready for it. So we figured out that, oh, even if we kind of do great things for them, they might not be able to actually scale. And we would need a lot of these small brands, small, small brands to kind of, you know, right. uh, run this business. Margins were thin. By 2022, July, macro market situation changed. Things around us globally changed. Capital became more expensive. The push towards profitability was more prominent than ever before. We realized that you know, small margins, five, six percent margins is not going to cut it. Uh, for us to become profitable on a fast track way, we need about, you know, 15, 20 percent margin. Yeah. That's when we started to think of, hey, what should we do? We don't do something now. Probably we would not be able to survive. Right. So in July 2022, we started to do small experiments. Can I understand? Because the, the, the key part of this to me at some level is, you have these four founders, hopefully all four of you are still involved, right? I'm so interested in what those internal conversations are like, right? Because I think externally, all people see is what they read in the press about raising money and building something and then unicorns and all this noise, right? But the really interesting stuff happens in the background where the four of you get together and say, we're growing, it feels good, but then boom, the Fed start raising interest rates, right? The macro situation changes, everything becomes more expensive, margins get smaller, it felt like everything was okay, but now the four of you were sitting around going, okay, look, we've got problems we didn't anticipate. What's our next idea? How are we going to fix this thing? Because we don't want to go away. We have something here. But what were those conversations like and what did it lead to? Wow, that's 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 the great way uh, to kind of, you know, segue to this. this. But yeah, it's so... I am blessed to have amazing co-founders, extremely rational and... Um, we knew that, you know, to in order to grow our business, we, we inherently knew that the margins are small. As we got more brands, uh, the biggest of brands like uh, Yummy Kitchen, Grab Kitchen, uh, Daily Box, Mankoku, etc., used to work with us. So the brands that you see today are very big. Right. Um, the food tech companies, they were using us, which was a testament that, you know, this model works. And this probably was the fastest way for anybody to grow. These were things that we knew are working for us. But we also knew that our margins were very thin and it yeah. is taking a lot of effort for us to earn every additional dollar in revenue. Yeah. And this was always in the back of our minds that, hey, you know, we're doing so many things. And, you know, because we're doing so many things and there's so many variables in this value chain, something or the other always breaks and we're not able to get this perfect result. So how can we have a perfect operating month? It started with that. And then it, it boiled down to us sitting down and saying that, hey, you know what? Uh, the first, at first there was denial. There was denial in all four of us that there's nothing wrong with the business. Hey, look, we have big clients. We have small clients. Our, right. All of our brands are so happy. Why should we change? Let's just execute it in a better way. We'll fix it in three months. Don't worry. It's going to be fixed. So it started with that. But I think all four of us were rational enough to say that, okay, let's start with small experimentations to figure out what else we could do. So we did not think of a big idea. We did not move away from what we were doing until September of last year. But we started to do those small experiments that led to that change and led to that realization. Uh, that started happening in July. So what were those experiments? Can you, can you share that with us? 
Right. So we identified what are the problems. So there were two kind of customers that we had. There was small brands and there were enterprise brands. Yep. Um, as the macro market situation started to change, there was more pressure on the bigger brands to make more margins and so on and so forth. And there were also funding pressures on them. So some of the companies uh, were, were feeling the heat and we were losing those customers. And it was it was perfectly rational for them to kind of leave us because right. there was additional margin that was going to us, which they wanted to kind of preserve for themselves. And on the small brand side, uh, they were not able to scale beyond, let's say, 10, 15 outlets. So we realized first one thing that, hey, you know, for, for the brands to scale, we need to go or have brands as our customers who can scale to multiple cities who would have the capacity to scale. But the bigger brands are not really interested to work with us beyond a point because we are taking because we would always eat into the margin. So right. even if we scale a brand to a particular point, at some point they would go and leave us and do it themselves. So the first realization was that what if we launch our own brands? Yeah. Like would that change things? If we have a brand, we could maintain our own quality. We have tons of data to know what product sells in what neighborhood at what price point. Work but so this is a completely, this is why I really want to know this, right? Because this is a completely different thing, right? It's like, instead of being a car dealer, what you've decided to do is just say, you know what, we're going to manufacture our own cars. And to be fair, this is kind of what the South Koreans did when they had been borrowing and borrowing technology from the Japanese. They had all these years of data, all these years of experience. And they were like, we have big industrial companies here. Never mind. We're just going to build Hyundai cars. I mean, that's kind of what you did, but it's a big big change no it was it was and it was also the fact that hey you know if we do not work with all of these brands right and if we have our own brands it would take away a lot of complexity yeah. from our systems it would would it could be a leaner team we would not need to kind of build stuff uh for our food fnb partners right. because we would, we would just need to satisfy ourselves and also on the kitchen side, we start to speak with those kitchens and say, hey, what is something? I mean, I always do that. But there's this, there's this thing where you measure NPs, where you ask people that on a scale of 1 to 10, this rate us. And if they rate you 9 and 10, they are your promoters. If they rate you 6 to 8, they are passivers. And if they rate you 1 Lower. to 5, yeah. then they are like uh, you know naysayers. So a naysayers, naysayer would discourage you from buying the product, the passivers would not promote you. And the promoters would say, hey, you know, Michael, have you tried this? And right. they would make you try that stuff. So we measure NPS, but I, I do an additional thing. I would go to people and I would say, what if we shut down tomorrow? Would you be sad? Yeah. And why would you be sad? And we felt that when we spoke to our kitchen partners and we asked them that, hey, uh, you know, if you shut down tomorrow, would you be sad? And they're like, yeah, we would be sad. So we felt that, okay, so at least there's something that's working for us. Right. So there's somebody who- Somebody's who happy. Gets, Nobody wants us around. Yeah. So we asked them why. They said that, hey, I'm able to generate an additional income. Right. And without making incremental effort, which means I was in the kitchen at my house uh, for about two to three hours every day anyway. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So by staying a little longer, I can make this additional cash that helps me- buy stuff for my family and get savings and stuff like that or have access to money which i never had right these housewives they freedom had access to money yeah 
And in these times, it's a great, great, great thing. I mean, this was 2020, 2021. So we felt that, okay, let's do, let's start to experiment on two things. Number one, let's start to work on what if we had our own brands? What would these brands look like? How would these brands be? What kind of food it would be? Let's start doing research. And let's and and how would we produce this? How would we go about this? So there was like series of experiments on this. And number two, for these kitchen partners, how can we number one diversify our kitchen network? So how could we kind of satisfy the home kitchens that we are dealing with, but also enable every other kitchen in the world, every other type of kitchen? So how could we kind of expand that network? Right. And number two is that what are the other things that we could automate? for the kitchen partner that the current kitchen partner does that could kind of make it even more interesting for a kitchen partner to kind of go ahead because it's getting really complex now yeah yeah so so we started to go to these kitchens and ask them okay apart from preparing food what are the other things that you do right we realized that apart from you know making the food they were also checking on three different food delivery platforms if there's an order or not yeah they would need to reconcile finance with three different companies they would need to do inventory checking uh they would need to check inventory if they have it or not have it if they have it then they need to close that inventory onto a food delivery platform and when they get it back as stock then they would open it again so there was like there was a cooking part and there was everything else and that everything else was also consuming energy for these kitchen partners and we yeah. decided okay let's note everything down let's try and see if we could automate all this stuff and make it make the kitchen partner only do the cooking that would take away a lot of pain from them. It seems to me, and again, tell me where I'm wrong here, that this is your, what's the right word? Um, this is your wheelhouse. You love solving this type of problem, don't you? I mean, you personally, but also your team, you're like, okay, this is super complex. There are a lot of moving pieces. We know that technology can solve this. We love doing this. Is that fair? Extreme. This is exactly where we were. We were pushed against the wall. We had very little money in the bank. We knew that if we don't figure this out very quickly, we are going to have a very bad time. Yeah. So we knew, need to do this. So there was this pressure of, there was definitely the problem and the excitement of solving it, but there was also this pressure of solving it extremely fast. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so so there was these both of these things acting on that, and I love doing this. I have done that in the past. Yeah. I can share an example with tell you. Me, tell me, tell me. Um, so while I was at Red Doors and we started Red Doors in 2015, we started Red Doors the first time when we came to Jakarta to start Red Doors. We were in an apartment uh, in central Jakarta and we rented an apartment, a service apartment. And then we said, oh, this service apartment is so good. And there are no service, other service apartments like this. Let's just do service apartments. That was the first idea of Red Doors. Right. So we rented out 10 service apartments in that building <laughs> and, and hired like a bunch of staff who could do uh, cleaning, etc., yeah, yeah. and listed them on a leading travel platform right. on in Indonesia and and the Agodas and the Booking.coms and everybody else. And we start to sell these service apartments uh, online. And you wouldn't believe they were selling like hotcakes because there were no service apartments. And okay. like who would promise uh, the five basic things that we promised that it's going to be clean, the toilet's going to be clean, <laughs> white bed sheets, and so on, TV and stuff like that, which is like great. So we figured out that this is going good. So instead of 10, like in two or three months time, we, we, we got to 20 apartments and then 20 became 30. And then by December of 2015, one day we got a notice from the apartment <laughs> uh, building, building, building management and they invited us to meet them. 
<laughs> we went to meet him and they said that we are throwing you out <laughs> you can't be doing this stuff this is a residential apartment and what the hell are you guys doing <laughs> this is creating a lot of chaos and security problems for us and we cannot allow this to function so we give you 24 hours to right. wrap this stuff you like okay the guests staying that 24 hours and in about 2 or 3 days time the the biggest travel company in indonesia banned us from their platform great they said they don't want to work with rentals so now we had no supply and we had no demand and we had to figure out the whole business from scratch and that's how we went to hotels and we standardized the hotels and we built reddoors.com to generate our own demand and then reddoors became reddoors and we had very little time to fix it because again there was yeah. always this pressure of cash in the bank right so yeah uh, <laughs> i love that story by the way that's so great but again this is the back stories that nobody ever hears right because it just doesn't look like that from the outside yeah yeah from the outside we always had a brave face sure. like hey yeah we did this we always knew it so yeah <laughs> but it there's always a yeah there's always somebody pushing you uh, to to kind of innovate and then uh, sorry yeah so so we went to these kitchens and we figured out that what are the things that we could automate and on the brand side we started to research on what kind of brands would we want so we the first thing that we realized in the brand side was that the food market is extremely crowded and yeah. you know this this a, a a food brand online on grab food or go food etc it's merely a listing it's not really a brand it's a commodity yeah so if the aggregator the food delivery app wants wants you to be visible or the algorithm wants you to be visible you'll be visible because there are 40000 other brands selling food yep so you, the the entire game is on visibility and discovery so yeah customer would yeah discoverability so if if you are able to get discovered the customer would eventually see you and want to try you because we all want to try new food yep but if you are just not visible you are not so it's it's a commodity it's not a brand then the competition is very tough there's like there's nothing unique to be sold how would you then create a brand that would stand out and and be different from 10000 other people selling the same thing and number 2 if we were to let's say we are able to create this brand how would we make sure that every time this item is sold to the customer that it tastes exactly the same right i mean this is this is the mcdonald's what's it called french fry problem this is how simplot yes. became so wealthy he was like don't worry about the potatoes i'll take care of the potatoes every potato you get will be standard as the potato and i will distribute all of my potatoes everywhere in the world exactly the same i guarantee it right this is a hard problem to solve sorry go ahead exactly so like we wanted mcdonald's was our uh, was our inspiration to do this i mean like we said that if mcdonald's if mcdonald's can do it we could do it yep like, like so so that was that was it and then the third problem so the first one was how we create a brand that stand out number two is that how do we how do we make sure that the food is consistent yep and number three is that when we become big and if we become big our costs should go down and it should not go up yeah. which means this should be a scalable every dollar every incremental do- dollar that we invest in this business should give us an incremental return i was going to say this gets back to the margins we were talking about before right because now you yes. control the margins this is one of the things that i wanted to, this is why i wanted to have this conversation because before you were at the mercy of the other providers but now you owned the entire margin which means you can move it around and create it wherever you want go ahead exactly so the first thing that we did is that we said 
in order to be standing out, we we felt that while the food space is crowded, the healthy food space is underserved. Got it. So there are a few healthy food brands out here in Indonesia. Healthy food is something that the world is moving forward with. Yep. Healthy food is the future of food, be it healthy food or vegan food. And healthy and vegan is not the same. The same, I mean, yeah. Indian vegan food, which is not healthy at all. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but healthy is healthy. And and how can we make the mass population move towards a healthier alternative? Right. Healthier, healthy food is the future. So our food should be healthier than what's available today. Number two is in the healthy food space as well, we realize that there are a few brands in Jakarta or in Bali, but largely uh, in other parts of Indonesia, there are no, no healthy food brands. Absolutely no healthy food brands. So that means there's no competition whatsoever. Even in Jakarta and Bali, the kind of brands that we have, they are very few in fewer districts. And so the first problem was about accessibility. So healthy food is not accessible currently. Number two is healthy food is currently not affordable. Healthy food right now is off the rich, for the rich, by the rich. Yeah, It's 8 to $10 price point. Uh, it's not McDonald's price point. Um, so it's not available for masses. And number three is healthy food is not tasty. Healthy food currently is salady. And, you know, people eat healthy food because either they're self-care or they're trying to watch their way. It's not the first choice. If I ask you, hey, what do you want to eat? People say pizza or KFC or something of that sort. Right. Nobody ever says I want to eat is like, you know, salad out of their own choice unless... If they say salad, then the next question people would ask is why? <laughs> or, or what are we doing are after hungry? that? I mean, because this is the thing, right? You have a salad and you're like, okay, yeah. now let's go get something good kind of thing, yeah? Yeah. So they like, but it was, it would never be somebody's first choice. So, right. so we figured out, okay, so these are the three problems that we need to solve. We need to make healthy food more affordable. We need to make healthy food accessible to all. And we need healthy food to become tasty. Uh, and on the production side, we figured that if we were to do our own brands, we need to have a McDonald's kind of a factory. So we we figured out where McDonald's food is produced. We went to their factory. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. What was so, it like? I've never been inside one of those factories before. Yeah. So the what, what McDonald's does is that they have they have master franchises. Yep. And these master franchisers then uh, contract with like a big factory who, who would then like mass manufacture food for them. And this. Uh, food factory is uh, is also in, in Jakarta and we the way we kind of went for that is that hey we want to place like a big order and we want to see your factory and it took us about a month to get access to them because their hands are full they don't right. want to produce so we so we realized two things while we did this number one if you were to mass manufacture these factories are not even interested to work with us because their tummies are full like McDonald's give them big contracts their demand is stable and like they're they're happy they're, they're not a startup like they're not hungry to grow this is like a family business yeah so number one if you were to do this manufacturing thing we would do it have to do it ourselves because we can't rely on current oems to manufacture for us because there are very long cycles and you know it's it's very difficult to work with them for, as a right. startup and number two we, we kind of went there and we saw the stuff and we realized oh wow this is amazing this is how food is mass manufactured but like this is extremely huge to take this inventory risk early on would be like very risky. How can we scale this factory down? Right. So that it still remains a factory, but it's not as big of a factory as like McDonald's is. So then I started to do my research. Um, I'm an engineer by degree. So I started to do my research, figured out what are the machines that we need? 
kind of a scaled down version of the say factory I, i designed our factory so we we first figured out that we need to do a factory ourselves so we figured out a plot a place where we could set up the factory and stuff like that wait a second and then wait a second i can't <laughs> let you just say i designed the factory myself and just like let it ride this is so com- complicated i was thinking about this before we started recording i meet people all the time and they're like yeah we my family has a factory that does this and i'm like okay that sounds great but like i don't know anything about a factory how did you design a factory from scratch yeah that was that's a great question i mean i watched a bunch of youtube videos <laughs> and <laughs> no yeah that's okay might sound absurd but this is this is the this is the truth Go ahead. i saw free myself so i knew that there are certain areas yep and we we also hired head chef we 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 were cognizant of the, of the fact that with the current skill that we have in the company we don't have like a pure chef yeah we got a very senior guy 15 years at hilton and then his last he was a co-founder of the last um, company is called varung abnormal they sell 1 million nasi goreng per day oh in indonesia gosh. he sold his company and extremely driven young guy and i told him about how we are changing the world and like how healthy food should be right you know like running water accessible for everybody stuff like that he was moved by my vision But what are you doing about what are you doing about cash during this period of time? Right? Cuz so far you haven't mentioned raising money, you haven't mentioned angel investment, you haven't mentioned anything. All you said was we felt like we had a problem and we yeah. just went to solve it and now you're building your own factory. Like how did you manage all the cash and stuff too? We were still running our old business and our business though had small margins but it was still contribution margin positive. Okay. So it was not a bad business. Yeah. Uh, it was just that the path to profitability on EBITDA was extremely lo- extremely long. Got so it. we were still not losing tons of money okay and by the time so far we had already raised about 3.5 million dollars okay uh, so our seed round was a million dollar and then we kept raising money uh, when the times were good we had some cash but we had by the time july came we had about we had the last million in the bank um so we we wanted to take all drastic measures and stuff like that but we we had a current current business was running so and all of this while i'm talking it seemed that it was taking a long time but all of this happened within about two weeks time so this was like compressed <laughs> right. in about two weeks time so in two weeks time we were able to figure out what are the problems that the kitchen face we need to launch our brands we need to launch healthy brands this is going to the price point uh, this is how our factory works this is how it should be designed we got a person on board who would help us to run that factory and so on and so forth so we got experience people who would figure out how the factories to be run and stuff like that so he has seen factory before so while i was designing it that he was able to give inputs okay we need this area this area this area this area this area then we got a consultant uh, who has built a lot of factories he's like a contractor so he was able to say point out stuff that we missed that hey yeah you know what you need a drainage outlet here that's missing you need this so with help of a lot of people and with a broad idea of what we were trying to do right we knew how the factory is going to be designed and then for the machines that was my own research where i could figure out machines from here and there yep. we imported a bunch of machines from germany and taiwan and to bring these machines to indonesia's import was difficult but we did it Good and then the factory came together it took us yeah it took us some while to kind of build this factory and out of the million dollar that i told you that we had in the bank we spent 750000 in making that factory wow. and i think that was the smartest decision that we took Uh, I know it was very bold that we put seventy five percent of the money that we had as capex, but we felt that if we had the factory, 
we would have a business. If you don't have the factory, we would not have, not have the business. And what was your conversation like with your investors at this time too, right? Because, you know, the investors had invested in this thing over here. And then they see in this two-week period of time, all this activity around building your own factory. They must be thinking, okay, these, these people are insane at some level. I know that there's a back and forth, and I'm exaggerating a little bit to make the point, right? But they did give you the money to invest in X, and you're just going, yeah, we're just going to go the other way. We're going to do B. Like, we're not even close to X anymore. We're going to build our own brands. We're going to make our own food. We're going to have our own factory. That's cool, right? And But really? Yeah, I think... I think this was uh, this was a time when we were having these conversations extremely openly and transparently with our investors. So I would get on a call and I would tell them that, hey, you know what? We have a problem with our business. The margins are extremely thin. Yep. There are two ways to do this. Either we need more cash now. Um, and right now with the market that is, I don't think we could raise more money unless uh, something drastic happens. And this is, and I would go on investor calls. I would record that feedback. I made an Excel sheet. And I presented an Excel sheet to people that, hey, you know, this is the Excel sheet. 80% of the investors are not investing right now. Right. So here is the problem. We don't have more cash coming. So either we change or we die. Right. right? So we need to make this change happen. And our investors were extremely supportive of right. supportive of this. And they would say, hey, let me connect. Are you building a factory? Let me connect you to this guy. Uh, you need machinery? Let me connect you to this guy. So, so they were giving me help with the resources that they could. Cool. And also the fact that I was clear that hey, we're taking this risk, but we'll take it calculatively, meaning like we'll not shut down our business, the current existing business instantly. Right. Which means we started from July pivoting, but we closed our previous business only in September. So there was this time where we were still running that business unless we had 100% conviction that this is the way to go. And by September that came, we got this factory. We started to run this factory. We, we knew what brand we want to build. So we built that brand. It was a healthy food brand, priced like McDonald's. Factory allowed us to mass manufacture consistent food on the food technology. Now, all of this, let me kind of crystallize this into three basic pillars of what we did. Go ahead. This is our three innovations. The first innovation is on the food tech. So we, we were able to mass manufacture food that was consistent in quality, preserving the nutritional value of the food, having a kick-ass cooking process that produces food with a calorie control, uh, no, no sugar, no MSG, no, uh, uh, no sodium, calorie control kind of food with great nutritional value and an elongated shelf life of about six to nine months. Do you patent that? So our food, yeah. So our, 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 our factory machinery and our cooking process uh, allowed us to produce high quality, consistent food uh, with a higher shelf life, longer shelf life, and uh, great nutritional value. And number two is that this process also allowed or ensured that the cooking process at the end kitchen is extremely simple five to seven minute reheating process. Yeah, it's got to be simplistic, right? Because so it's exactly It was as simple yeah. as putting together a burger, yes. That's how the consistency of the end customer would be. So our food tech innovation led to these two basic uh, outcomes. Then comes our distribution, logistics and distribution technology. So while we were running our old business, we were building our logistics and distribution technology any which ways, which okay. now came in handy. So every food item that came out of our factory was QR coded. So we were able to track food into the supply chain right up till when it goes to the kitchen. And let me let me explain you the, how the food business works. So the food and food business, the only way you can reduce costs 
is not by reducing ingredients because you can't. So let's say something needs 100 grams of butter, you can't add 90 grams of butter because then the taste changes. The only way to make more margins is to reduce wastages. And most of the wastages happens during the supply chain or due to expiry and so on. Yeah. I was just going to say, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to get back to this idea. If you went to these homemakers, right, and said, how can we automate all the things that you're doing here? And yet what you did is you abstracted that, all of that away from them and then just went and did that yourself, right? So that they didn't have to worry about ordering. They didn't have to worry about anything. All they had to do, if they were still involved, was just like pop it into a microwave, boil it, reheat it, or do whatever. And then it was done. And because now you controlled the ordering process as well, you can reduce your waste to a rounding error as opposed to 10 to 15%. And that 10 to 15% then stops eating into your margin and becomes profit, yeah? Yeah, so absolutely. So that 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 exactly brings me to the third point. So the, the second innovation was around supply chain and logistics. The supply chain logistics innovation allows us to track wastages, apply FIFO on our cold warehouse so that the expired, expired out, of, out of items would go first. And number two, it also allows us to understand demand at every outlet level right. and at aggregate level to then that then goes as input to our factory on how much to produce. And it also goes as goes into our logistics team on how much to each outlet. That reduces wastage as well. And then the third one was our distribution technology. And this is where the kitchen app comes into picture, where we found out what are the all the problems of the kitchen. We noted it down and we automated all of this. Now here is what we did. On that, we integrated on APIs with all of the food delivery apps. So all the orders from different apps would come in one app, which is DishServe app. Finally. Then we automated the financial reconciliation process. Yeah, we automated Finally. the financial reconciliation process. We automated the service. We automated marketing. We automated inventory management. So when the when the kitchen partner gets the inventory, they just need to scan the QR code and the inventory automatically fills in. So that means they don't have to count manually. That doesn't waste their time anymore. And so we automated all the things that they were doing, except the cooking stuff. Right. The cooking, <laughs> what they do. Everything else was automated through this one app, which is called the Dish Kitchen app. So we automated that. So now these three fundamental uh, points, uh, the food tech, the distribution tech, uh, and the supply chain logistics tech, that allowed us to uh, create the business that we are in today. And also the app that we created for the kitchen partners but not was not only useful for delivery only kitchens sure but was also useful for dine-in kitchens so we started we started diversifying we also got to cafes and stuff like that and i was going to say that this is a this is an application that i've been waiting for for years right because you walk into any cafe today and they've got like 16 little terminals and i just think this has got to drive everybody insane the real business that yeah. wins here is the platform that consolidates all of that fragmentation into just one order panel you don't really care if it's Company yeah. X, company Y, or company Z. All you care is you have an order and they'll come and pick it up and you exactly. just go, okay, Bill, that's for you, Lisa, that's for you, and just leave. That's a business in and of itself. So so we did that, not only that, but also for dine-in orders, QR code, the, the customer scans the QR code, places the order, order goes directly into the kitchen, yep. no need for a cashier, uh, something like that. So so we did did all of that on, on that front. Um, and the result of this was that we created that one brand in July, it's called KitFit. And by September, it was doing about fifty thousand dollars in revenue. That's when, which is about fifty percent of our revenue from all other brands combined. A month. Used, a month. So, so in about three months, we went from zero to fifty thousand dollars in revenue for one brand. And all the other brands used to work with cumulatively gave us fifty thousand dollars in revenue. So I was like uh, about a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. So we are like, okay, this seems to be working. 
yeah this seems to be working and now is the time when we reduce our costs we lose the other brands business we let our our teams go leaner um and and just stop that business completely so in september we stopped all of that business completely by december this one brand that we that we went with reached $100000 in revenue and that's when we decided hey if this is working in jabodutabek let's launch other cities uh dishserve was now a 30 people company only only 30 people including the factory the tech uh the ops etc everybody we are 30 people super lean yeah. start to expand yeah we started to expand did not hire anybody new uh was able to seamlessly expand we now operate in 10 indonesian cities we have 200 plus kitchen partners now we have all kinds of kitchens that work with us be it delivery only kitchens small cafes restaurants and stuff like that we launched one more brand in january it's called love in tokyo it's a japanese healthy food brand and that brand also following the same growth pattern as kitfit how do you handle the discovery now though in other words when people go onto the food ordering app so they're going onto a dish serve app just to get just to look at the brands or you still mixed in with all the other brands they're still trying to figure out or are you just dominating the health category when people press the health button there's like crickets and your brand yeah these are all, all great questions let me let me kind of answer this go ahead uh, right after i finish uh, the the previous thing that i was saying so so love in tokyo was a healthy food brand that we launched following the same trajectory in february we launched one more brand called uncle tam it's a healthy fast food brand burgers chicken steak etc but all healthy also following the same trajectory so what we learned during this way is that how to how to replicate success of one brand to subsequent brands which is an extremely difficult thing to do i mean like not a lot of brands have been able to do this and we have been able to do this scientifically because we are playing in that healthy healthy space but more importantly is that all of our food is like regular food but it's a healthier alternative so it's like japanese food normal japanese food that you say karage and stuff like that but it is all a healthier version of it so customers discover our food right when they are looking to eat japanese they see japanese they see a few things but they also see one listing that says healthy japanese food and they're like this is that's good. for me let me just just do this yeah. and when they see the prices they're like oh it's priced like a normal food but it's healthier why should i eat something else why should i not eat the healthier alternative so for the customer the choice is that the food tastes like amazing normal food it is priced like normal food and it's available closer to me so all of our the way we have spread geographically today no matter where you are in the cities that we operate in there is a dish serve outlet in less than 2 km radius near you so that means the customer gets the food in less than 25 minutes the best one in the industry was dominos 30 minutes of free we yeah. are able to do that in 25 minutes because we are just hyper local now coming to your question how does the customer uh, what's our sales mix look yeah. like so yes number one is customer discovers through our listings but our listings are able to stand out because of the healthy, healthy component part. and the yeah. um yeah so it's not normal food price etc number two we also started dissert.com in january uh, this year so dissert.com the first time we started people were like hey you know what it's extremely expensive to build traffic on dissert.com these super apps the cacs are very high blah 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 one thing happened in our favor was because of this macro market situation the food delivery apps also start to rationalize their discounts right so this was an opportunity for people like us who would wanted to build their own direct traffic it had to happen it had to happen sorry go ahead yeah it had to happen and i have seen this happening at red doors 
we were listed on agoda booking.com traveloka and all of these people yep. and we built reddoors.com and I, i and uh by the time i was leaving about 80% of the bookings came through reddoors.com direct yeah yeah again margin control you control the margin yourself exactly and customer loyalty man when yeah. when customers buy from reddoors.com they will pick a reddoors hotel so they, there's no chance of customer <laughs> right, picking right, right. so so they're more loyal to you so we 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 figured out dissert.com we launched dissert.com so in the first month itself we broke even on cost per order basis that means every order that we got from dissert.com was profitable got it even after taking out the cac and we integrated with like lalamu and grab express etc for the last mile so when the order comes through dissert.com it's being fulfilled by uh, a lalamu or right. a grab express or something of that sort yeah. but even after taking away all of this we were able to, because we produce the food we sell it directly we had the margins we were able to offer a discount to the customer to switch the platform at the same point of time making of margins and and the cacs were looking good as well sustainable so so dissert.com uh, came along and we realized two things are on a brand level because by now we had three brands so at the brand level our repeat rate is 26% monthly repeat rate meaning in the same month 26% of the customers eat us again wow so and then it is on the brand level but on the company level because we have three brands 39% of the customers repeat on a monthly basis because if they try kitfit then they would also try loving tokyo they would also try uncle dan so on and so forth but did they know that all those are disserved brands do you know what i mean Yes, they know it. Yeah, they know it. Uh, because every time they get the food delivered, the package in which it comes says "disturbed." Got it. Okay, because that's important, right, for a brand loyalty perspective. Do you use yeah. tech as well to enhance the loyalty, right? Order ten, get one free, kind of thing, or just you know loyalty points or some kind of thing like that as well. Yeah, so that happens on Disser dot com. So on Disser dot com, our our repeat rate is forty five percent. So so now you're so just that, showing off. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Come just on, just trying to make you laugh. Go ahead. Of what we try to do, but yeah. Um, so that is why the CACs look great because on the cost per order basis, because the customers repeat, uh, we are able to kind of you know break even on that. And the reason why this happens is because just the customer experience. Uh, the customers comes on Dissert.com and and figures out, oh, there are all of these healthy food brands as well. I never knew that a burger could be this healthy, or I never knew uh, the fried chicken could be healthy because the fried chicken is organic. and not cooked in palm oil cooked in coconut oil and so on and so forth and this is a healthier alternative version of a fried chicken so customers kind of that's the reason why they would repeat and as we stand as as we talk today uh, we are also launching one more brand it's called chekas it's a it's a korean healthy food brand how do you spell uh, that chekas c h i c k a s s okay <laughs> so it's like chekas but 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 chekas i got it <laughs> So we we've kind of figured out how we we would uh, we could launch brand after brand after brand and they all follow a similar trajectory and how we could kind of launch kitchen after kitchen after kitchen and it's extremely scalable for us so our effort to onboard a new kitchen has to be extremely small as compared to the incremental dollar value that we get out of that kitchen How about the factories though The factory yeah so the factory is now up and running extremely good But you have ten cities, right? Do you have factories in all those cities? Because otherwise, we how have do you one factory. Or? You have one. The factory. factory is one. The factory will always be one in one country. Really? So the the, that's how it is going to be. Yeah, because if you do not standardize the process at one place, it's the the, the pre cooking process at one place. Uh, you would not be able to take advantage of number one low COGS because you would procure in bulk at one place. Yep. Uh, number two, 
a process that is replicable and there's no mistake in the process. Yeah. The more factories, the more chances of mistake. And number three, adding one machine in a factory would give you a better output because there are some of the things that you would need to replicate which do not directly contribute in production like like waste disposal system yeah. or uh, yeah, yeah. air ventilation system, etc. These are additional costs at every factory level. So if you have create lots of factories, you pay for all of these overheads um, for no for no for no real reason. So right. we would want to have this one factory, and current factory has a capacity of about four hundred thousand items produced per month, and which we would exhaust by the end of this year. I was going to say next um, week. <laughs> it just feels like it's growing so fast. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, it was growing so fast, and we had to. Pre-pone. So when you launch a factory, then there are production lines. So you start with one production line because we had one brand. We said, okay, let's launch another brand, but we would just use the same production line. But we were wrong. We had to set up another production line because the demand for that other brand was so high that we had to launch. So so the, the, the entire capacity would be would saturate at 400,000 items by the end of this year. Um, but the good part is that by September this year, uh, we'll break even on profitability. So it'll be, we'll be a bit more positive by September so will be profitable as a company. Uh, we now have a clear path to profitability and business just looks in a much better shape. The margins are amazing. Uh, customers are happy. Our kitchen partners are happy. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to let you go there, but the last thing I want to ask is this. What now are the internal conversations? And is there some sort of, you know, you can like now stop holding your breath about are we going to survive, right? Because before you said <clears throat> we either do this or we die, right? Either we change or we die. You've changed. You haven't died. What does growth from a, from a local to a regional standpoint look like to you as a team? Or is, or is Indonesia itself just such a big market that you're satisfied for now being there? Do you think about expanding outside of Indonesia? Because the model should work everywhere, yeah? Absolutely. I think this model would work everywhere and and while we do have dreams and aspirations, I would say aspirations or dreams, we do have aspirations to kind of have a pan-Southeast Asia business. Uh, but I think for the next couple of years, we are pretty focused on Indonesia. And the way I see expansion is is, is bucketed into three, uh, three parts. The first one is geographical expansion. Yep. So uh, we now operate in about 10 Indonesian cities. Uh, by the end of this year, this number should double and we should be at least in 20 to 25 Indonesian cities. So that's that's number one. The second is product expansion, uh, which means currently we have yeah we have about uh, three uh, three brands. A fourth one is launching soon, but we should have about twelve brands. And the third one uh, is 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 our kitchen partner. So currently we have these delivery only kitchens, and we have a few cafes and restaurants. And uh, yeah, this is something which is which is the most exciting thing that I'm working on these days, which is. Um, we've got a few cafes. The, so we go to a cafe owner. It's a small 15 to 20 seater cafe. Right. The problem with this cafe owner is that he's a nameless, faceless, brandless place. He has real estate. People come there. He will always have lower margins because he's not branded. He can't go and buy a franchisee of McDonald's or Subway or something. No. That's all. That's not going to happen. Um, so we are rebranding these cafes to one of our brands or depending on the brand that the cafe owner wants, we, we, we rebrand that cafe, something very similar to a Red Doors, like Red Doors go to an existing hotel, rebrand it to a Red Doors hotel and start yep. selling it. So we are now rebranding these cafes. There are 300,000 such small cafes in Indonesia. Right. And like the market opportunity is huge. So we have the technology, we have the food, we rebrand that cafe into a kit fit cafe. Um, now this cafe is a branded cafe. This cafe gets amazing food. 
he doesn't have to hire a head chef invest in menu r&d etc he could he could lower down his operating expenses he gets the tech which automates all of the back of the house operations and he gets to become like the branded you know branded cafe he stands out from the nearby competition and so on and so forth. so that is something that we are working on these days so rish i want to let you go because we've been at this for an hour and the next topic that I'm going to raise could keep us for another hour. I want you to think about this and I want you to come back in six months and tell me I'm wrong. If there are 300,000 cafes, because I don't want to go through this now, but I just want to introduce this as a topic and see what you think. If there are 300,000 cafes, this is your offline to online business connectivity. If you're providing them the technology for the food part of it, now you can also provide them technology for other things like finance, insurance, savings, all these other all these other products that you can offer to them that nobody else has to see, but that they will definitely pay for because it'll make their operations pick a number five times, seven times more efficient. So it's more than just a food business. I want to leave you with that. I really want to thank you, Rishab Singhi, for coming and doing this today. Your flexibility, your openness and just sharing this story has been incredible the founder and ceo of dish serve i really appreciate it thank you so much for doing this today thank you michael thanks a lot for your time